All right, good morning. Welcome to another week of being scattered together. Uh, thank you very much as well, members who uh, joined an extra time this past week uh, to be a part of our trimesterly meeting. I'm happy to announce to you uh, all of our uh, motions that were put forward so were unanimously put through, uh, praise God, including uh, the welcoming of Courtney Chu as our Children and Family Ministry Director, Church Administrator, so uh, we're just praising God for uh, the work that He has done and all the work we're believing Him to continue to do. So uh, that's, that's amazing news. I, I want to just uh, dive right into uh, what we do each week here and just to look at a passage now of God's Word. We're going to look at it together, we're going to talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, a Bible app, uh, whatever it is, would you turn with me to our passage today? Matthew 6, now beginning at verse 5, we'll look at what Jesus goes on to say here about practicing our righteousness before others. So Matthew 6, beginning at verse 5, Jesus says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Wow. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's God's word. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we will dive into this passage together. Spirit of God, come now, we pray, and illumine the preaching of your word. Open up uh, this passage today to our eyes, to our hearts, to our ears, to our minds, and accomplish the transforming work that I believe you want to accomplish in us through this. Um, encourage our hearts, convict our hearts, do the work that, that you've already planned and that you promise you will do when you send out your word so that it doesn't return to you, Boyd. Uh, accomplish that work, God, in each one of us hearing this message. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Don't do nice things and then try to cash them in later. That's manipulation. Or so says uh, psychotherapist and TikTok sensation Matthias Barker, who uh, lives and works out of Spokane, Washington. Uh, like, like, hey, I bought you that Xbox controller. I, I cleaned the house last night. The least you could do is blank. Don't do that. Don't do that, he says, because, well, they couldn't consent to that. Right? They, they didn't know it was a trade. They, they didn't know that, that that nice thing you were doing was an exchange for something in the future. He goes on, I, I know it might feel scary to ask for what we need without leverage, but it's not honest. And if it's not honest, then it's not loving. End quote. So we are continuing in this teaching series through the Gospel of Matthew, entitled Kingdom Come, and, and this morning in particular, 
We are continuing on, and I guess you could call it a three-part series within a series, um, looking at, uh, that's kind of all centered around Jesus' teaching there back in verse 1 of our passage, uh, or, or of chapter 6, excuse me, about practicing our righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. Last week, we looked at the first of three examples that Jesus gives us of what this could look like in our giving, or we called it in our charity. Now today, we're going to look at this second example Jesus gives us of what this could look like as it relates to our prayer. Uh, our prayer, or, or, which you know, along with praise and adoration, many times also includes that same scary task of asking for what we want, and in this case, asking for what we want from God. And I don't know about you, but for me anyways, out of all the three examples that Jesus gives of righteous acts or what are really spiritual disciplines that we could do and we could perform in order to seek the well done of others uh, instead of or at least maybe alongside the well done of God, I feel like prayer is actually the most surprising one on the list for me. I don't know if it's the same for you because like with charity, acts of giving, and I think even with fasting actually. I think we can all see how someone could perhaps perform those actions in a kind of hypocritical, self-focused way uh, that that was about seeking applause or or seeking to draw the attention of others to himself. I I think we could see that. But prayer? Really? How, How could a spiritual discipline that's all about our communication with God be in any way this kind of hypocritical, self-focused, attention-drawing kind of way? How how could that even be possible? Well, it's a great question. And and fortunately, Jesus shows us exactly how uh, we could pray in a hypocritical way, as well as, and this relates to the quote we began with, as well as how we could pray in a manipulative way that, that seeks to leverage our prayers instead of just simply asking for what we want. And we'll dig more deeply into why we do that and what that could look like as, as we go. But just assuming that, that you, like me, don't want our prayers in any way to be categorized in either of these ways, uh, either as manipulative, hypocritical, I, I, I want to look together at what Jesus reveals in our passage today about what I believe is both the antidote as well as the safeguard for praying in those kind of ways. So we're going to look at just two things here. I want to show you the reward of secret prayer and then the audience of simple prayer. The reward of secret prayer, the audience of simple prayer. So if you closed your Bibles, Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to our passage, Matthew 6, beginning of verse 5. Follow along with me as Jesus once again calls us to examine the heart motives behind our righteous acts, and in this case, the heart motive behind our prayer. Okay. So let's look first of all at the reward of secret prayer. Reward of secret prayer. Now the first thing to notice uh, before we even get to Jesus' description of hypocritical prayer is the word and, which you see at the beginning of our passage. That word and, which you see at the beginning of verse 5 and verse 7, and I know maybe I'm already making some of you nervous. You're like, sheesh, if he's going to be look look at each word in this kind of microscopic way, we're going to be here for hours. No. Relax. No, that's not what I'm doing. All I want to do is really just point out the fact that, that everything we're going to look at here as it relates to prayer uh, is, is, and actually everything we're going to look at next week about fasting is all connected back to what Jesus said in verse 1 of chapter 6. Again, look with me there. 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Everything we're looking at here and next week as well is all connected back to that first verse of chapter 6. And the reason Jesus says that, and we looked at this in detail last week, is because doing our acts of righteousness in order that we are the ones who are seen and glorified, while it might draw the applause and the temporary fleeting well done of others, denies us both the eternal reward as well as the well done of our Father in heaven. We saw clearly how this works with our charity last week in verses 2 through 4. Now we're going to see how this works with our prayer in our passage today. So look, first of all, at the beginning of our passage here, verse 5. Jesus says this, and, there's our connection word, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Okay, so once again, Jesus uses that word hypocrites to describe those who perform these acts of righteousness in order to be seen by others, so so that they might appear to be spiritual. They're they're seen as worshipers of God, but when the true motive of their hearts is ultimately that, well, really, they're the ones who are being worshipped. And again, that word hypocrite is a word used in Jesus' day to describe Greek actors who were up on a stage who would wear different masks in order to play different roles on a stage. He's using that exact same word here, and the point he's trying to make, once again, is that while everyone else may be fooled by your performance, they may be fooled by your play acting, our Father in heaven is not. He he sees very clearly uh, what's going on past the surface down to the heart. And just as we saw last week, that charity, our giving is not the problem. Same thing here. Prayer. Prayer is not the problem. Prayer is not the issue that Jesus is addressing, and for the record, neither is praying standing up. Neither is praying standing up in the synagogue or praying standing up on the street corner. Neither is praying at a family dinner in a restaurant. None of that is actually the problem. The problem, according to Jesus, is the motivation behind why it is you're praying. As we clearly see there again, Second half of verse 5, as it relates to these hypocritical worshipers, it is that they may be seen by others. That's what Jesus says is the real problem he's addressing. And as we learned last week, if being seen as spiritual, seen as being spiritually mature by others is all the reward you're seeking, then hey, congratulations. You have now received your reward. Go on your way. But if your desire is also the well done of your Father in heaven... Then, in the end, he must be the only audience that we seek at all in our prayers. Now, again, you may end up receiving the well done of both, but if we really want the well done of the Father, we can only be seeking his. And if you look at what Jesus goes on, look at verse 6 now. If you look at what he goes on to present as the antidote, or, or we could call it the safeguard against doing this kind of hypocritical prayer, he says, I believe both literally and figuratively. He says, when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. So this is practicing what Jesus refers to as secret prayer or praying in secret. So he's saying, this this is how you are to pray. Now, this room that Jesus refers to, uh, historians tell us, would would have likely been a storeroom in, in the kind of common layout of a house in that day. And and the reason it was the room Jesus refers to is because it was the only room in the house that had a door you could lock. Um, I remember living in a small apartment and whenever I wanted to like have a second to myself and do my devotions, the bathroom was the only door that I could go to and knew I wouldn't be disturbed. So 
not the same thing necessarily, but the idea is the same. Go to that room, that one place where you can go and be by yourself, close the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and who hears what you pray in secret. And, and, and hopefully, I think the point is plain. By, by being in that place and literally blocking out the sight or the eyes of anyone else watching you, seeking the gaze as well as the reward of your Father in heaven becomes the only option. That's the only one who you can, who's available to be sought because everyone else is literally blocked out. And so you, it immediately deals with the problem of hip, hypocritical prayer, seeking uh, others to see your prayer. And we read that, and I think it seems pretty straightforward. It seems pretty good. Uh, uh, it makes sense. And yet, if you're at all like me, the, the question we immediately ask ourselves as we read that is like, well, okay, but so what? <laughs> So what? I mean, like all of us can imagine a Pharisee or one of the religious rulers in Jesus' day uh, uh, standing up in the synagogue or out on the street corner, hands outstretched, calling out loudly pained expression on their face, maybe a tear perfectly placed in the corner of their eye, and they're praying loudly. Maybe someone bumps into them and it's like, oh, no, no, sorry, I'm just, I'm just praying here. I'm just praying to my father. No, no, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Like, like we can all imagine that, and we, and we all just think, yeah, of course that's wrong. Like, of course that person is just seeking to be, uh, draw attention to themselves, looking to, trying to look spiritual and seek the admiration of others. But I don't do that. I don't pray like that. So, so what's this got to do with me? And I think the answer to that question is found by asking yourself the question, okay, but where are our synagogues and street corners today? Where are our places of gathering, either for worship or just places of gathering at all. Where are they today? I think we'd all agree, okay, church, I mean, we haven't been able to gather for a long time, so maybe we forgot that one, but church is a place we, we gather and worship, and I, I've been to this church now almost, almost 17 years now, and in that time, I don't think, I can't even think of hardly any times at all where I've ever seen this kind of prayer taking place, and yet I think we've all seen it at some point, haven't we? We've been at that church service, we've been at that prayer gathering, we, we've been at that restaurant where, where the guy is praying loudly, and, and, and we all have that same feeling of like, it feels really uncomfortable. You, you feel like, are, are you even praying right now? Like the prayer sounds more like soliloquy than supplication. And, and we're just kind of like, like, so we, th that's a place where this can happen, this kind of hypocritical prayer even today. Or, and maybe just to get maybe a little bit more personal for, for some of you, how about the street corner of our social media? The street corner of social media. Uh, how many of you, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone, uh, I follow a lot of you, though, on, on social media, and I'm asking you the question, how many of you have ever spent 15 plus minutes setting up and then posting a perfectly lit, staged, and filtered photograph of you sitting on a nice chair, head bowed, Bible open. Maybe there's a, a gif of like a, a dove floating above you, flapping wings. And then underneath, your caption is, sweet time of fellowship with the Lord. Hashtag starting my day right. Whatever it is. Um, I... I'm not going to pretend to know your heart motives. I'm not God. I don't see your heart. But I still want to ask you, what is it? What is your heart motive? Why are you posting that? 
Uh, um, what's, what's your goal in doing that? If you've already had an amazing, sweet time of, of prayer and connection with God in, in prayer and in, and in worship and, and reading his word, what, what further reward do you need? What more would you need than that? Why does anybody else need to know? Now, again, none of this is to discourage you or anyone else from, from praying in front of people. This isn't saying every time you pray, don't you dare you better get into the room and close the door. It's not saying that. Uh, again, Leon Morse, I think his comment is helpful. He rightly notes, Jesus is not, of course, he says, forbidding prayer in public. For example, in services of public worship or on other occasions. Rather, he is giving direction for one's own prayers and indicating that they are to be undertaken with a single eye on God, not with a side glance at people who could be impressed. So the eye is this way and not this way, not peripheral vision. And as we said last week, it was related to our giving. The point in the end is it comes down to this kind of prayer and the spiritual display anytime we're praying. Any kind of spiritual display that we do in front of others is to ask ourselves the questions. First of all, who is well done am I truly seeking? And then... You ask yourself the question personally, yourself, is the reward of time spent in the presence of our Father in heaven enough? Is that enough, even if no one else ever even knew that that time of prayer took place? It's just that time that you have reward enough for you. Okay, so that's the reward of secret prayer. Again, I think uh, that's why I said it's literal and figurative because we are going to pray in front of other people, but our attitude of prayer should still be that of I'm, I'm blocking out the gaze of others and I'm only seeking an eye on my Father. Last thing I want to look at together with you quickly is what Jesus teaches us now about the audience of simple prayer. The audience of simple prayer. Let's just look again at what Jesus has to say about this second kind of prayer for a minute, and then we'll just talk about it. So look with me now at verse 7. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, whether you have kids yourself, or you can just remember being a kid... Uh, whatever it is, basically all of us know the experience of asking uh, your parents, asking a teacher for something that you want, which you're pretty sure that they're not going to give to you, and then the whole goal from that point on now becomes just to wear them down. Wear them down physically, emotionally, spiritually, in every way possible, until they're just so exhausted that they're like, okay, fine, have it, yes, and then, and then they, they just give in. I remember road trips uh, as a kid with my family driving on the highway, and sometimes you'd go by those ice cream shops that put those road signs up on the side of the road. I remember one saying, scream until daddy stops the car. And I was just like, at the time I thought it was funny. Now I would not laugh if I saw that. A biblical example of this same kind of idea, because think about why we do that. Why are, we, why are we saying things over and over again, trying to wear them down? It's because we don't feel like you really know what I need and what I want, and so I need to overwhelm you in order to get it from you. That, that's why we act that way. A biblical example of this, which maybe you, you'd be familiar with, is a story from 1 Kings 18, uh, where we read about the battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. 
there on Mount Carmel. If you don't know this story, God's people had wandered into a kind of syncretistic, blended worship where under the leadership of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they believed that they could worship both Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Baal at the same time. And they'd been led into this kind of syncretism. And in order to call them back to faithfulness in worship, God sends the prophet Elijah to have this epic kind of battle and, and call the people back to faithfulness in him where they set up a test. They set up these two altars on Mount Carmel and as the rules of the battle stipulate, no fire is to be brought to the sacrifice. The God who answers with fire is the true God. So, I mean, spoiler alert if you haven't read this, uh, Baal doesn't answer. Um, Baal doesn't answer because Baal is... Is not a god at all. Baal is at best a demon, and at worst, he's a hunk of stone that is worshipped. But Baal doesn't answer. God does answer with fire. Everything's burned up. The people of Israel, they're called back to faithfulness to him for a while. Uh, but the point I want us to think about as it relates to what Jesus is saying in our passage today in verse 7 here about how we are not to pray as his kingdom citizens, is I want to contrast the way we see the prophets of Baal coming to their God in order to, be, to have an audience with him, in order to, to seek and be heard by him, contrasted with what you see Elijah doing as he seeks an audience with Yahweh where he answers with fire from heaven. So I'll, I'll read it for us if you want to look along with me. If you're fast in your Bible, switch to 1 Kings 18 for a minute. I'm going to start reading at verse 26. This is, first of all, the prophets of Baal now. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep, and he must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of offering the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention to them. So, so that's, that's their practice. This is how they're seeking uh, to be, have an audience with their God. But then listen to what happens when it's Elijah's turn. He, he says to the prophets of Baal, that's enough. And he calls the, the people to himself. And this is what we read now, look, starting at verse 36. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all the things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this my people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then, that, so that's it, right? That's it. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So do you see it? Do you see, you see how with the Gentile prophets of Baal, gaining an audience with their God required hours, like all day praying, or chanting, limping, cutting themselves even with lances and swords in order to gain an audience and be heard and answered, which 
They weren't actually. They still hadn't done enough, apparently, to, to be answered by him. Whereas Elijah, with him, all that was required to gain an audience with Yahweh and, and be answered was a simple, single prayer to the God that he knew already heard him and that he trusted would answer exactly as he knew was needed in this moment. Which is exactly why, after describing this kind of prayer in our passage like this, like the prophets of Baal, Jesus goes on to say this, verse 8. Do not be like them. Do not be like them. Why? For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He's way ahead of you. And I know that that, that can be confusing to read that sometimes. A lot of us ask the question, okay, well, if God already knows what I need before I even ask Him, well, what's the point of even praying? Why bother? Well, F.D. Bruner here responds helpfully in this way. He says this, quote, It could seem that this principle is more apt to inhibit than to encourage prayer. For if God already knows our needs and what we're going to pray, why pray at all? But in personal relations, isn't it precisely with those human beings who know us best, who sometimes know our needs better than we do, that we talk most freely? Therefore, the words he knows need not inhibit prayer, for if the Father did not know, he would not be God. And the fact that God already knows the situation encourages us all the more freely to come and talk to him about it. I love that. Because he knows, that gives us all the more freedom to come. Trusting that we're not informing him, we're not giving him new information which he wasn't aware of. We're coming to a God who knows the situation fully already. The point as we think about how to apply this now to our lives today, as Jesus goes on to, to complete in verse 9 and following when he teaches us how it is that we should pray, is that he's trying to show us God is neither a divine boss that we need to impress somehow with a whole lot of words, nor is he a grudging divine giver that we must overwhelm in order to receive anything from him. He is, as Jesus reveals at the beginning of this well-known pattern of prayer, often referred to as the Lord's Prayer, he is our Father. He's our Father in heaven. That, that's who we're coming to. And I don't know. I don't know whether you've had a, a good or a bad experience with bosses or with fathers in your life, but here's what we know I think we could all agree on, that the difference between a boss and a father is that a boss hires you and pays you based on your qualifications and based on working the hours that are required to you in your contract. That, that's why he sees you and, and meets your needs and has a relationship with you, whereas a father relates to you and cares for your needs not on the basis uh, of your performance or your qualifications, but on the basis of your relationship with him. The fact that you're his child, that's, that's why he meets you and cares for your needs. Totally different way of approaching God. So this is why, in contrast to the empty repetition of Gentiles, Jesus lays out this simple pattern of prayer for his kingdom citizens. I love how one uh, commentator said, we can either pray this prayer as we often do, just as it is, or the prayer can be, he called it, like handrails, with which we use to go off into all kinds of different aspects of prayer that we want to talk to God about. He gives us this pattern of prayer that begins with adoration of not God in heaven, not the Lord in heaven, but our Father in heaven. And then begins by, by adoration of this God who is able to meet all our needs. This one whose name is hallowed. This one who we ask his kingdom come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. A God who is able to meet all our needs. And then a prayer that concludes with trust in God's ability to meet 
all the needs that we have, our daily bread, our forgiveness, our deliverance. Trusting that he knows every need even before we speak it. And that he is a, a gracious giver. This, this, this simple prayer, Jesus says, this is all you need. All that's needed to gain an audience with your father in prayer, nothing more. And as Jesus goes on to say in the very next chapter, which of you, if your son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks you for fish, will give him a serpent? A serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? It's God's desire to give good gifts to us as his father, as our father. Or the Apostle Paul, Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's the heart of our Father. Or as the great reformer Martin Luther once said it so succinctly and well, prayer is not about overcoming God's reluctance but about laying hold of his willingness. The point in the end is it relates, first of all, to hypocritical, uh, self-focused, self-seeking prayer is to ask the same diagnostic question that we asked last week as it related to our giving. Namely, in this case now with our prayer, is the knowledge that my Father in heaven hears and sees my prayer in secret and will reward them, is that enough? Is the reward of time in the presence of my Father enough or along with His well done, Do I need the applause and the reverence of others? Which is it? Again, this this is not about not praying publicly or praying in front of other people so they can hear you. Jesus prayed publicly. Uh, All the apostles prayed publicly. So the point is not whether anyone else hears you when you pray. The point is simply discerning the heart motivation behind why it is that you're praying. Why are you praying at all? And whose audience are you truly seeking? And then, the point is it relates to the kind of manipulation in prayer, or this kind where we try to leverage our prayers with length, or, or fancy King James language, or, or, or just meaningless repetition, thinking that that's what will gain us favor, or an audience with God, is to ask, do I truly understand the nature of my relationship with God now as my Father? Do I understand what kind of relationship I actually have with Him? Or am I still relating to Him like a boss or a judge? Again, this is not about don't pray too long or or don't repeat things. Jesus prayed long prayers, sometimes prayed all night. It's not about not repetition. Think of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane or Paul's prayer for his thorn in the flesh. All, All those are prayers that include repetition. The point is to discern the true motivation of our hearts and asking whether we understand the true relationship of our of our. Our our true relationship with God made possible through Jesus or, and we'll know this by the way that we're praying, am I still thinking that I somehow have to to earn my acceptance with God, earn my entrance into his presence and earn whatever it is that I'm asking for? For as the message of the gospel is always thankfully there to remind us, although, yes, the nature of our relationship with God was changed, our, our access to God was severed, the moment that, our, that we rebelled against God and we were removed from his presence in the garden. That's, that's true. But in coming to earth, being perfectly obedient to God himself, Jesus made our access to the Father open and available now for all time. 
He also altered the nature of our relationship with God back to what it was before by taking the punishment for all of our disobedience, all of our breaking of the law on himself so that now we no longer stand before God as a judge or as a boss, but as our Father. And since Jesus has accomplished both our access as well as our restored relationship himself, he's done all the work. He's done everything necessary through his own efforts on our behalf. We can now just simply come. Just come. Come without pretense. Come without performance. Come without trying to leverage our prayers. Just simply come as we read in Hebrews 4. We can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Receive the imperishable reward of mercy and grace to help in every time of need. Thanks be to God. Or, or as the hymn writer Augustus Tumlady, Top Lady, so, so simply and profoundly wrote, you know this. Not the labor of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, lest I die. That's the simpleness of this coming to him. And as Jesus lovingly calls to you and to me this morning, in light of his completed work on our behalf, don't, don't come with performance. Don't come with pretense or, or repetition or, or just trying to earn your way into my presence. Pray then like this. Would you pray with me? Let, let's pray that together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let me give us a closing benediction and we'll be dismissed now to our closing song this morning. Paul's words remind us of the power of our God that is at work within us as we pray. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus now and for all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in the grace and the peace of Christ.